Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. We're thrilled today uh, to be talking about something about which I just don't know enough. And, and I constantly, I've admitted it several times now, Kit, that I don't know enough about the Roman world. Yeah, anything sort of pre-World War One is like not your bag. I mean, a bit of maybe Titanic and sort of, but we are going way, way, way back. Get back before like the 1880s and my, my mind starts wondering if I'm honest. So, yeah, we are, we are going a bit further back than that. Um, about sort of, you know, almost two, 2000 years back uh, from there. So Graham Wrightson is joining us. He is an associate professor at South Dakota State University. He has studied with and worked on both sides of the Atlantic and he specializes in ancient warfare, particularly when it comes to Alexander the Great and his successors. But today we are talking about Rome and how it took over the world. Graham, thanks for joining us. Uh, you're welcome. Pleasure to be here. So I have titled this podcast, How Rome Took Over the World. Um, the key to the very, very grandiose title of this podcast is one man. But before we get to him, where are we in history and what does the world look like? So we're in the um, late third century, early second century BCE, Antiochus became king in uh, 222 at the age of 18 or 19 and reigned until his death in uh, 187. So the world around then the, in the Mediterranean saw somewhat of a, I guess somewhat of a power vacuum where the three main kingdoms in the eastern part of the the region Macedon, Egypt and the Seleucids all had new young kings at the same time. And smaller kingdoms and leagues of local states were rising to prominence, vying for power, such as the Italian League, the Achaean League, there was a new tyrant of Sparta, Macanidas in Greece, and then Rhodes and Pergamum in Asia Minor, the last two of which we'll get to later important in the story of the Roman victory. Rome, in the meantime, was just about to start the Second Punic War, um, but was already the growing power on the horizon of the of the Mediterranean and had really already taken over the Western Mediterranean already. They were they were on their way um, to the rest. Well let's sort of sort of get get a wider picture and re- rewind a little bit because we're talking about the Roman Republic um, with the Punic Wars and things like that. Yep. But you mentioned these the Seleucids. Um, this is one of the successor states of Alexander the Great, isn't it? So what happens? Alexander the Great dies and then suddenly you get all these little kingdoms popping up. What was the Seleucid Empire? Um, yeah, so Alexander, uh, as most people know, conquered uh, Greece and what was the Persian Empire at the time. Um, so uh, Asia Minor, Mesopotamia, on into India and Egypt. Um, after his death, his one son was a baby. His other, his wife was pregnant with his other son. And so his powerful generals pretty much just carved up his kingdom amongst themselves. Uh, and after a decade or two of infighting, 
basically we end up with three major kingdoms that survive all the chaos of the next 30 or 40 years. And that's um, the Macedonian monarchy in Macedon, the Egyptian um, rulership led by Ptolemy, the famous um, Ptolemies. Uh, and then you have the Seleucid Empire founded by one of Alexander's generals, Seleucus, in Mesopotamia and Asia Minor, uh, which was one of the biggest empires of the time, uh, much bigger than Macedon, um, even after Seleucus famously sold his share of India to Chandragupta for 500 elephants, still a pretty big um, location. So we're talking from sort of Turkey to modern-day Iran or something like that, Afghanistan? Um, Yeah, so the Seleucid Empire, Antiochus, um, it was at its biggest rejuvenated form under Antiochus the Great, hence his nickname, which he gets from from re-solidifying the eastern part of the empire. And our story takes us from Greece and Syria in the west out to Afghanistan and India with stops in Iraq and Iran along the way. Um, So... He's basically in you know, the whole of Western Asia and Eastern Europe he deals with. That's brilliant. So I can I just say that Antiochus is not how I was pronouncing it when I was typing these questions up yesterday. Uh, you've already mentioned <laughs> Antiochus I had, Kit. What did you have? I had Antiochus as well, because I was thinking like Antioch is obviously a big city in the Crusades. And oh, yeah. If you say it's Antiochus, I bow to your knowledge. It makes uh, well, it grander. Yeah, I guess all of these people have been dead that long that they can't fight with you about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we've you've alluded to him a couple of times already and we've discussed his name. So, And you mentioned when he ruled from. He's not a flash in the pan. That's a four-decade reign. Um, how and when does he come to power? Who is he? And I'm guessing from where we're talking about, he's not a white man, is he? <laughs> well, um, he to deal with the last one first, he probably is because okay. he descended the royal family descend from um, the Macedonian generals who take over from Alexander. So they're all Macedonians, which is hard to pin down ethnically exactly what that means now. Um, Certainly they weren't classed as Greek by the Greeks. They're more um, like uh, Balkan area ethnically. Um, uh, So even though he goes and rules um, over there, there was intermarriage of Persian aristocracy, um, uh, so, so I guess it's all shades of white. We're not talking um, uh, other uh, sort of African um, aspects, but it's, uh, yeah, it's hard to tell exactly, um, you know, what colour they were exactly, but um, more European ancestry to start with. Uh, and he becomes king in 222 after the murder of his elder brother, uh, which was very common um, amongst all these kings. Uh, and he reigns, as you say, for 36 years which is very long by ancient standards. There's very few ancient kings who rule that long. When we're talking about Antiochus, uh, sorry, Antiochus, what we're really talking about is his fighting career rather than sort of his, his long reign. Um, and that starts with, uh, with Raphia. Is, is that right? Almost. First, um, he, as soon as he becomes king uh, at a young age, he starts an abortive attempt on the Ptolemies in Syria, which doesn't work very well. We don't have many details about it. But then there was also a rebellion going on by two brothers governing the provinces of Media and Persia at the same time. And he sent a general to deal with them, but they defeated the general. So then he stops invading Syria and goes uh, to what is now Iraq to deal with these two brothers, which he defeats in his first major battle um, relatively easily. Basically, half the brother's army switches sides and joins him. So he doesn't really have to fight the battle in the end. Um, but he goes over there first. Uh, and then once he's dealt with them, because he can't leave them in his um, main control region when going to fight um, the Ptolemies, then he turns around and goes and invades Syria again to deal with the new, the young Ptolemy. Uh, and that's when the two of them fight at uh, Raphia, um, where Antiochus should have won, but as we'll see becomes his common theme he got caught up in the thrill of the cavalry charge and pursued the retreating enemy too far by the time he decided he well someone told him he should probably turn around and go back to the battlefield by now which was like two and a half miles away he by the time he gets back the rest of his army has run away 
because Ptolemy, who was defeated in the cavalry, sort of joined the phalanx and won in the middle while Antiochus was away. So he sort of gained vi- defeat from the jewels of victory. How old is uh, how old is he in this? Are we talking like some sort of you know rebellious teenager, and he's sort of thinking he's Alexander the Great? You know, well he he certainly had the um, the enthusiasm to make himself the next Alexander the Great. He's the only Seleucid king to get the moniker the Great. He was given after the after the Battle of Raphia, um, but it's traditional amongst Macedonian monarchies, at least after Alexander, for the generals to command a cavalry charge, and he is in his early twenties. By now at Raffia. Um, so, uh, well, literally, yeah, he's only just hit his 20s. So he's very young. He hasn't, although the Seleucids had the practice of putting their children in leadership positions in the army, often as cavalry commanders, they didn't, um, and especially because his brother died so early, he didn't have the experience as an actual general. Um, but he knew how to ride his horse and how to fight, and he loved the the, the fight and the, the riding. So he's caught up in the enthusiasm of being in the cavalry and it sort of ignores his responsibilities as now the general, because he hasn't really done that before. Um, up to this point, uh, still after this point, he's being advised by a bunch of courtiers who have their own little political games that are going on to try and manipulate the new king. So um, when it comes to the the battle, he's in charge, but he doesn't really have the experience. As you, as you know, he's still young. So, that's part of the problem. Ptolemy, on the other hand, um, there's not the same Egyptian emphasis on cavalry command in the in the Ptolemaic army. Um, and Ptolemy seems, as a character, more willing to bow to senior generals around him. And so uh, he's sort of more of the practical young soldier that he rescues the victory by um, not fleeing headlong, uh, having lost the initial conflict with Antiochus in the cavalry, and then joins the phalanx to to see if he can salvage the battle, which he then does, um, thanks to his relatively better um, phalanx and other generals in the army um, after Antiochus. First battle down, and it's a huge loss for Antiochus. So where does he go from here? I mean, how do you get to being the great if you start out being a loser, has he been sort of humbled? Does it knock him down a little bit? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I um, In the book, I comment in the introduction that Antiochus is sort of um, three for three when it comes to battles, and yet he still gets the moniker the Great. Um, as I think I noted earlier, he gets the Great moniker after his um, next period where he goes and basically subdues all the rebel states around the empire. So after Raphia... He hasn't actually lost anything. He he hasn't even lost much of his army. His army pretty much just run away without actually taking that many casualties, which is the standard thing in, in Greek warfare. Um, the losing side, you lose most of your troops if you're pursued and chased down by the enemy cavalry. But because Antiochus had the cavalry, he could sort of save his army. So he hasn't actually lost that many troops and he hasn't lost any territory because he was the one doing the invading. So he just gives up with Syria for now, goes back into his empire and then um, deals with his uh, cousin who has rebelled to some degree. Um, And he actually gained experience as a commander there. So he just resumes his efforts, putting down all these different challenges. He defeats his cousin in Turkey. Then he um, punishes the king of Armenia who wasn't paying his taxes and then goes off and subdues the kingdoms of Parthia in Iran and the Greco-Bactrians in Afghanistan. And then even goes all the way into India to renew a peace treaty with a local ruler there. So far from actually being dimmed after Raphia, his power actually increases after the battle. And in the next few years, this sojourn that he goes on around his empire both serves to expand his borders, make sure that the territories on his borders are back in the Seleucid fold uh, with him as the overlord. Um, And he's obviously showing himself to all of his new um, subjects in the empire uh, traveling around where he won't probably get back to them again, but at least he shows himself there. So he actually increases his support and that's where he gets the nickname the great because there he wins two um, relatively large um, battles uh, after that point, um, uh, and then he you know, comes back and invades Syria again after Raphia, where he faces down the Egyptians again in 198, 
Uh, and this time he easily defeated the Egyptian royal army at Panion, although it was commanded by a general Scopus rather than um, Ptolemy. Uh, but he sort of, uh, with that, resurrects his military reputation. Um, it's such a resounding thrashing of the Egyptians that he regains any lost prestige that he had after Raphia. So Raphia is sort of this, um, is viewed anyway by a lot of people as this um, this outlier in his generalship position, and people talk about him as being a good general, uh, whereas in Raffia, um, we'll see uh, later that the same mistakes come back up to haunt him against the Romans later. I want to ask you, so what I love about you ancient historians is uh, we, we ask you things, so you go, oh, we just don't know. We don't know. We don't know that. We don't know that. We don't know that. Do we know anything about his personality or what he was like as a man? Is there like some tablet with it chiseled in somewhere that we can rely on? Or is he just like they they all feel murky to me because I'm spoiled. I've got 200 books behind me written by the guys that I'm writing about. You don't have that. No, we don't have that. And that's um, why we ancient historians love what we do is because yeah. we like a puzzle piece you get to put in places and we have the same evidence that doesn't really change then you just have to interpret it differently and fill in the yeah. gaps to some degree the problem with Antiochus is we don't have any contemporary sources from the Seleucid Empire almost all our sources are Roman um, or at least pointing towards the Romans so it's difficult to tell exactly who he is and what he's doing um, they and they almost always focus on the events rather than the person. Yeah. Um, we don't get a biography of Antiochus um, by Plutarch like we do for other famous individuals in the Greek and Roman worlds, like um, you know Pyrrhus or Philippimon, who we'll talk about in a minute. Or um, so what you need uh, a big cave with a load of tablets or scrolls in it to turn up. Yeah, so if there was some sort of archive in the Seleucid um, main cities, you know, either, you know, as you say, Antioch, founded by one of his relatives, or Babylon, um, or um, other Seleucia, other cities that they have around their empire, if some archive of tablets arrived, then it would give us a, a Seleucid perspective of what's going on rather than an external. Um, view of later historians uh, reusing stuff and part of the problem is that these sources did exist once upon a time yeah and our roman sources used them so and you can sort of get back to the original ones through the roman sources but yeah. they don't exist anymore so we can't look at them and talk about them and do the proper you know quantifying uh, historiography with the sources themselves because we don't have them existent. So you just have to try and piece together quotes or names of historians and locations of other histories that are being used by the Romans um, and other uh, um, Greeks uh, to discuss these topics. So yes, it's a lot of piecing together of, of puzzle pieces and what information we have um, in terms of dates and times and um, locations and figuring out who's going where, when, and which person is being killed when and all sorts of fun stuff but you know i i you know we generally enjoy these different things i'm always at odds with the modern historians in my department where they <laughs> are surprised when we criticize our only extant sources for not being very good um, <laughs> um, when that's not a modern historian thing to do you trust everything that you see as opposed to taking it with a very large helping of salt which tends to be the way that we function with with our sources Speaking of, um, because you can still tell us a story and you've mentioned it already, it's because Rome comes into the picture. So how does Antiochus come into conflict with Rome? In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so uh, Antiochus comes into conflict with Rome after the Romans have defeated Philip V, King of Macedon, um, in the Second Macedonian War in 196. 
Philip was the one, another one of these young kings, and he'd been pushing to expand his authority in Greece, which had abutted on Romans' control of what is now the coast of Croatia, uh, and got into this war that he eventually loses at uh, the Battle of Tanskefali in 196. Um, one of Rome's allies, who actually helped defeat Philip, the Italian League, weren't very satisfied with the share of victory spoils that they got from the Romans. And so almost immediately after they have helped Rome defeat Philip, they then write to the three main kings in the region, Nabus, the new tyrant of Sparta, Philip again, and Antiochus, asking them to come to Greece and get rid of the Romans. The Italians basically just switch sides. And they're the power brokers, although they think of themselves as the power brokers. They're basically just troublemakers who are, when it all comes down to it, want you to do the fighting for them rather than them doing it themselves. And so they uh, send the letter to Antiochus, who takes his time arriving. Um, Nabus is very early in his rebellion against the Romans, but by the time Antiochus finally coordinates himself and organizes himself to actually come to Greece, Nabus has already lost to the new Roman ally, the Achaean League, headed by probably the greatest general of his time, Philippimen. Um, and so Antiochus gets there and doesn't receive the support the Italians promised him, realizes he doesn't get any army added to his own 10,000 troops that he brings um, and is uh, is then faced with the Roman and their allies, including Philip V, uh, now facing down Antiochus as the person coming to, they see him as the person coming to invade Greece, which they've very propagandistically declared having given freedom to after the Second Macedonian War, after defeating Philip. And so the Romans claim they're fighting for the freedom of Greece. And the Antiochus is the one who's trying to subdue Greece. And so the Romans then send Antiochus a bunch of ultimatums, which he ignores uh, or tries to get around anyway, until eventually um, they do bring an army um, supported by Philip V and they face Antiochus down um, in Greece. And this is the Battle of Thermopylae. And we probably need to clarify for uh, Alex and anyone else who doesn't like ancient history. Um, not that this, one, is not right? Ger- this is not Gerard Butler. Okay. I, no. you know what, I'm kind of immune to Gerard Butler anyway. I just, meh. But this isn't the 300, is it? No. So Thermopylae was a crucial um, strategic choke point in Greece. Uh, it's the scene of many famous battles from obviously Leonidas in the 300. Um, to even World War II, there's a battle at Thermopylae of local defence. So it spans the entire history of Greece. There are numerous battles at Thermopylae. Um, so you always have to give the date of the battle that you're talking about. Um, but Antiochus, basically, he's in Greece, realised he hasn't got troops coming to join him in his army, and he has this bigger Roman army now facing him down, um, coming through Macedon because they're allied with Philip. So he, as most armies did fortify Thermopylae to try and gain a position where he can make use of the fact that he has no cavalry or elephants at this point because he didn't bring any and nobody gave them to him like we thought they would so he then can have his phalanx in the middle um, and uh, sort of hold the famous choke point wall that Thermopylae was just as the the 300 in their hoplite phalanx plus the 700 thespians and a bunch of others who stayed with them to fight the Persians, uh, held off the Persians for a few days. Antiochus plans to do the same thing against the Romans. Well, well let's look at the battle because this isn't probably what most people imagine. So the, the Romans haven't had what's called the Marius reforms. So they don't have the sort of, they have a, a legion, but it's not your the Roman legion as we picture it. And the Greeks are still using uh, a phalanx, right? So yes. what happens when a Greek phalanx, you know, a lot of guys holding their shafts, uh, poking out, smashes into a Roman legion at Thermopylae? What does the battle look like? Yeah, good question. So the Roman legion um, is not as professional as it becomes after the Marian reforms, um, but it is as veterans of the Second Punic War um, and the Macedonian Wars it's a very experienced um, group of commanders, especially, um, and uh, soldiers underneath them. And the Punic um, Wars, that's against Carthage, right? The Punic Wars are against Carthage, okay. yeah. And you get the famous invasion of Hannibal marching over the Alps and stuff. That's the second Punic War, as opposed to the first Punic War that happened um, uh, almost 100 years before where we are right now. Um, so Rome has an experienced army, Antiochus, does too in the core of 10,000 troops that he's brought, but he doesn't get the cavalry. 
Rome is supported by Philip V, who also has veterans of the war with Rome, um, and he adds uh, elephants and cavalry um, to support it. So Antiochus' army is smaller, so he, he chooses the, um, the strategic benefit of Thermopylae. Uh, and there, as you rightly say, the, the Macedonian style of warfare, as I call it, which covers all the Hellenistic kingdoms. So the Macedonians, the Seleucids, the Egyptians, um, later the uh, Pontic armies and Mithridates, um, they all rely on the Sarissa phalanx, which is primarily what I research and talk about, um, uh, where Sarissa is a long pike, about 18 to 21 feet. Um, and so once if you're together in a phalanx formation, you have your five layers of spears sticking out um, before the first person in the phalanx can meet the enemy. The Romans, on the other hand, just have individual short spears and shields. So it's very hard for the, uh, any non phalanx infantry without pikes to get close enough to do any damage to the enemy phalanx and so as long as you remain unbroken and your flanks are protected the phalanx is pretty much invulnerable going forwards um and so uh i can feel uh, that coming here um yeah well we'll get to that in a minute but um at thermopylae it works out well um, the Romans can't defeat the phalanx front on at Thermopylae. The, the phalanx stands in front of the wall, so they have the fortified wall to their back, uh, and then they just have this unbroken line of 10,000 pikemen um, basically trying to take on everything that Romans throw at them. Um, and we know from other sources of other battles of the Romans against uh, the phalanx that they had difficulty. They couldn't defeat it head on. We get reports of horrific injuries of soldiers being impaled on spears through their shields and armor and all sorts of other nasty stuff going on. Um, so that's the, um, the, the way that it sets up and the, the Greeks, the, sorry, the, I shouldn't call them Greeks. The Seleucids of Antiochus are doing um, well against the Romans when they're in this position at Thermopylae. So it's not looking too bad for Antiochus right now, but how is he? How is he going to rescue defeat from the jaws of victory now? Yeah, exactly. Um, he, as usual with Thermopylae, just as happened with good old Gerard Butler, the Romans, as the Persians, knew that there was a different path around the fortified pass, um, and the useless Aetolians who'd been placed there by Antiochus to stop the Romans coming just ran off basically and let the Romans come past. And so by the time, as soon as Antiochus's army learned that the Roman force had got over the mountain pass and was now behind them, they ran off obviously because they didn't want to get attacked from both sides at once. A phalanx can't fight um, effectively anyway um, on both its fronts. So as soon as you attack a phalanx in the flank or the rear, then it's done for. And the phalangites knew that. So as soon as they heard the Romans coming, down the mountain pass, they ran off and tried to save themselves, as did Antiochus, uh, only he was on horseback, so he got away. And unfortunately, the majority of his phalanx did not, and they were cut down by the Roman cavalry, um, and he probably lost almost the entirety of his 10,000 soldiers that he brought with him, except for his elite aristocratic cavalry who ran away with him as fast as they could um, and uh, went sailed away back to um, what is now Turkey, taking Antiochus's new young attractive wife actually that he'd married the winter before what, what what sort of casualties are we talking about here i mean give us the, the sort of the size of the battle how many men does he lose life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs learn more at uh1.com Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Um, from what we can get, our sources, are, ancient sources are terrible about giving reliable battles, um, statistics and casualty numbers. But it seems 
that he lost his entire phalanx, his entire infantry force is defeated. Is they just they're gone. Whether they're many, most of them will be captured. A large number of them will be cut down. I mean, you can't run fast carrying an eighteen foot pike um, when you have cavalry changing you, especially after your cavalry have left you to it. So most of them just get cut down. So it's, it's probably the entirety yeah. of the ten thousand. It's almost ten thousand soldiers he loses. Um, soldiers. That must be a body blow. So how does someone like Antiochus, who's who is now two for two in terms of major battles? Uh, sort of losing it. Um, surely someone's going to be saying, "Hey, dude, maybe maybe go easy on the battles here." What happens? Um, yeah, so I mean, he's he's I guess he's three for two at this point. He's won three when he was doing his um, expedition into Asia, um, and he's lost the two big ones that everybody remembers. Everybody forgets the three other ones, slightly smaller ones. Um, so he's not necessarily his advisors saying, hey, don't fight because you don't know what you're doing. Um, this one, he was in trouble because the Italian uh, allies didn't give him the cavalry he expected. And so his army didn't grow. And then he was outnumbered and he lost. And Thermopylae was a problem. Um, and I argue that he should have seen the writing on the wall earlier and shouldn't even have attempted to face down the Romans at Thermopylae because the pass would always be a trouble. Um, and he should have saved his 10,000 soldiers for a battle on his terms when he can get his full army into play. So when he goes back, um, he has advisors and it's clear he doesn't know who to trust. One of his main advisors at this point is Hannibal, the famous enemy of Rome who has lost the second Punic war and he Carthage exiles him obviously. So he flees to Antiochus who takes him in as an advisor. And many people have suggested that Hannibal is sort of the, the voice behind this ongoing animosity with Rome. Um, but Hannibal tells Antiochus that he should do everything he can to stop the Romans on land from getting into Asia um, and not fight a naval battle. But at the same time, Antiochus has another advisor who is an, an exile from Rhodes who really wants to just shove it to Rhodes that exiled him, who argues apparently more convincingly to Antiochus that he should instead adopt a naval war. Um, and in the meantime, Antiochus is writing to Rome saying, hey, I haven't done anything wrong. I didn't invade Greece to annoy you. I haven't done anything against the Romans. You attacked me. I didn't attack you, which is completely not true. But he tells these things. Um, he's basically trying to buy himself time um, and stop the Romans coming long enough for him to basically figure out what he's doing. And it's here that we, in my view, we see the Antiochus who doesn't know how to fight a campaign as a successful general. Uh, it's here we see his generalship wavers. He doesn't decide on uh, commit fully to a strategy um, or doesn't think through the problems with this naval concept that he goes for. Um, and by the time Rome arrives, he's lost years of, of planning where he could have done a Xerxes in the Greek Greco-Persian Wars and spent those years building up a massive army to take on the Romans when they come. And instead he put all his resources into building this Navy. Um, uh, and then when he realizes that's not going to work, eventually um, he is behind the eight ball in terms of getting an army together and training them sufficiently to fight the Romans. So he's sort of behind partly because of his own lack of commitment it took him too long to arrive in the first place. So he couldn't link up with neighbors and then it took him too long to retreat. And then it takes him too long to actually commit to opposing the Romans um, with all this political wavering that he does in between. We've come to the big finale for our story, which is the Battle of Magnesia. You don't want to give everything away so that people don't buy your book. But ultimately, is Antiochus' problem the fact that he cannot combine arms at all? Yeah, so in the naval war, he um, even Hannibal fights a naval battle for him and loses this naval battle. And um, it's in the naval war that we see the rise of Rome's two principal allies, Rhodes, especially uh, for the naval ally, but also Pergamum, this annoying little nascent empire that had come on the borders of what used to be the Seleucid Empire has now become its own thing. Um, and they are the erstwhile allies of Rome. So the last Pergamene king famously leaves his kingdom to Rome. 
um, uh, only a few decades um, after Antiochus's defeat. So once it's clear that this naval war is going to um, be a disaster and he loses hundreds of ships and men um, in various different battles that go horribly wrong for Antiochus, um, by the time Rome is coming, he eventually faces down Rome. He doesn't even stop their crossing, even oppose their crossing of the Hellespont. Um, but he does gather an army that is large. And so um, his problem is sort of combined arms, but it's more uh, generalship in using combined arms. So he, uh, failing to adequately utilize all the types of unit that he gathers in this large army, right? The principle of combined arms, for those who don't know, in both ancient and modern warfare, is that every type of unit fights in battle the best way that it is able to get its most strengths, while the other units protect its weaknesses, and it does the same to those. So you get this combination of units is is better um, than each one individually. So the the army is the sum of its parts, rather than relying on one unit itself to fight. Uh, and at Magnesia, Antiochus commanded one of the largest and most diverse armies ever in the Greek world. Um, he outnumbers the Romans in cavalry, almost five to one, which includes the medieval knight-esque cataphracts and these heavy armored horses and men who have this devastating charge. Um, uh, he has... Um, so many elephants that the Romans don't even bother to put their elephants in the battle line because um, there's no point. There's just, they don't even have enough to consider it. Um, so the elephants just stick, stay behind for the Romans. Um, so despite, yet despite all these advantages, Antiochus basically makes two generalship mistakes that cost him the battle. And the, literally the first mistake he makes is the one that loses the battle, which is um, he has scythe chariots, which most generals accepted by this point were pretty much useless in battle if you knew how to deal with them. Um, and unfortunately for Antiochus, Eumenes, the king of Pergamum, was fighting opposite the chariots um, with the only relatively decent Roman cavalry force. Uh, and once Antiochus decides, and this is why I wish we had sources telling us why he makes this decision, but Antiochus decides to begin the battle with this charge of side chariots. And he should have known full well that that's not how you use side chariots effectively he launches them towards the romans and eumenes very simply just tells the uh, the missile troops to bombard the chariots with missiles so that the, the the horses are killed and all this different stuff and so the chariots just fall back into chaos into the camel arches which then fall back into the cavalry uh, and eumenes follows up the chaos with a cavalry charge um, and gets rid of of antiochus's elite cavalry without them even moving literally they're just standing still when all of a sudden from the dust cloud come this violent charge of just a relatively small unit of cavalry. Uh, and then that turns everything um, wrong. Uh, and then they just roll up the flank and it all goes uh, badly from there. The other mistake is that Antiochus himself does exactly what he does at Raphia and wins on his flank in a cavalry charge. And then again, just pursues the Romans too far so that by the time he turns around, his army has gone again. Uh, so whatever it is, 15 years later, he doesn't learn his lesson from Raphia and carries on with his um, sh uh, his attack. Um, so, yeah, so combined arms in that he didn't use, he had a great combined arms army and there's a litany of other generals in the Hellenistic world who would have made better use of it and perhaps stopped Rome, but Antiochus didn't do it properly, didn't know what he was doing and um, and loses spectacularly as a result. I think 15 years on, he's starting to look like the Arsene Wenger of the ancient world to me, in that he keeps doing the same thing, um, failing failing to defend, if you like, um, and like tactically sort himself out and expecting a different result. Yeah, basically, he doesn't improve or learn his lessons as a general. Um, he's got like a philosophy of how he does it. This is the Wenger thing. And that's how he's going to do it, regardless of the fact that it doesn't work. Yeah, I don't know if he has a philosophy as such as he just loses his the control of himself in the cavalry charge. And that's what he lives for and loves. Um, and uh, so that's what he does. He should have had generals that would should have 
kept him in line. You know, Alexander the Great's army was so good, not just because Alexander knew what he was doing, but that his subordinate generals and officers also knew what they were doing. And they made sure that the army functioned as it should, despite um, everything, as did all of his successor generals. Antiochus, it seems, um, his courtiers probably bowed to him too much and uh, sort of went with his plan. Um, By now, he's obviously not a young general anymore, um, but he... He, he again gets caught up in the cavalry charge. Uh, and in the book, I make the comparison to Prince Rupert of the um, uh, English Civil Wars, who is the other, he's like the poster boy for cavalry oh, charges. Don't going. Oh, I mean, if Charlie White hears that, she is going to be so upset. She is a Prince Rupert fangirl. Um, well, uh, militarily speaking, Prince Rupert was relatively useless. He loved his cavalry charges. <laughs> Bring it on. I would love to see this. I Bring would love to see uh, Charlie getting schooled. Just because he wears a pretty wig, Charlie, does not make him a great military commander. I'm suspicious of someone who's a naval officer and a cavalry officer and an artist and a, like, I don't know, dentist or and does everything. They, those people make me suspicious. But in terms of, in terms of the battle of magnesia what's the legacy of this roman victory you have referred to it um as the point where rome takes over the world yeah so i mean that was obviously meant to be a nice snappy subtitle um but um, my view uh is that magnesia should if used properly the army should have been enough to stop the romans and um one of the greatest Roman generals of the Republic at the time who beat Hannibal, Scipio Africanus, is an advisor in the Roman army at the time. His brother, the other Scipio, is in command of the Roman army. And Africanus comments in complete shock that uh, what Antiochus is doing um, and not opposing the Roman advance. And he expects, he says it would have been very difficult for the Romans to have even got to Asia had Antiochus faced them down earlier when they were in um, Thrace. Uh, on their crossing. Um, uh, and so my, my view is that Antiochus defeat created this vacuum for Rome to just eventually hoover up all these different states in the Mediterranean. Um, the Seleucid Empire was the last major empire standing in the way of Rome controlling the whole of the Mediterranean um, other than, than Egypt. But at this point, Egypt is significantly weaker than the Seleucids as Antiochus proved at, at Panion. Um, so, Antiochus' defeat established Roman superiority pretty much everywhere. Um, and once Antiochus was defeated so easily, well, so um, not easily, but so disastrously by the Romans at Magnesia, his defeat removed sort of any major obstacle to Roman dominion. It became only a matter of time, as far as I'm concerned, before Rome conquered the whole of the Mediterranean and Mesopotamia. Um, there was no other empire with the military resources of, of the Seleucids um, and a, a commander of um, of such resources in terms of such a large kingdom. Um, later Seleucid kings, after Antiochus' defeat, did not have the same resources Antiochus did. Um, so this defeat, uh, when it should, if used properly, um, been uh, at least a draw, if not, you know, would have at least put it into question as to whether the Romans could win, um, just uh, clears the way for the Romans to do everything. And the military machine, as you probably know, only met the Roman military machine, only met its match um, 150 years later at the armies of Parthia, which Antiochus had subdued earlier at Carai, when the Roman vulnerability to cataphract heavy cavalry in conjunction with horse archers destroys the entirety of the Roman army. And incidentally, these units were major components of Antiochus's army at Magnesia in greater quantities than the Parthians had, um, coupled with a very good Seleucid phalanx and a lot of elephants. But um, because Antiochus didn't use them all properly, he didn't, he wasn't able to do what the Parthians did at Carai uh, and so lost. Um, so I think Antiochus' defeat opened the way for Rome to take over and irrevocably subdued the only empire that was capable of resisting. Yeah, what, what becomes of Antiochus? Because when we look at, at this period of history, people have heard of Scythia Africanus, who we haven't even mentioned. 
um, who supposedly he gets bribed by Antiochus. You've mentioned Hannibal. I think his opponent at Thermopylae was Cato the Elder. These are all really famous figures um, in, in the ancient world. Why haven't most people heard of Antiochus? What happens to him? Um, yeah, I mean, Antiochus only really comes to prominence um, with this battle, uh, and it's viewed as the second in the three battles that Rome fought against Macedonian-style armies, the first being kind of Scephali against Philip V, then Magnesia against Antiochus. And he often gets left out because people view the Battle of Pydna in 167 against Philip V's son, Perseus, as the major turning point, um, that that's the one where Rome finally subdues Macedon. And that's when Macedon and Greece become Roman provinces, um, uh, which is true. But Pydna, um, Perseus's army was never really capable of dealing with the Romans um, fully. It wasn't anywhere near as large as Antiochus's. So he just gets missed in this conglomeration of Roman um, conquests or defeats of Macedonian-style armies. Um, the Seleucid Empire carries on for uh, quite a while um, after uh, Seleucus, but as in sort of a minimal form. They're never able to, again, oppose the, the Ptolemies in Syria um, in force uh, without Rome getting involved and telling them not to. Um, Antiochus, uh, so Magnesia is in 192, um, and he's forced to sign this uh, terrible treaty of Apamea a few years later, um, where Antiochus pretty much abandons large chunks of the Seleucid Empire um, and gives up a lot of stuff to Ro- uh, Rome's allies, Rhodes and Eumenes in Pergamum, uh, as well as most of his Greek um, controls. Uh, and so um, the, the other provinces of the outside of the empire, Parthia, the Greco-Bactrian kingdom, India, Armenia, um, Pontus, all these different kingdoms then rise to the fore because the Seleucids are never able to, um, to overthrow them. Uh, and then um, he tries to uh, deal with um, some of these various different things, uh, and then he dies in 187. So only, well, only a year after the treaty with Rome, and only five years after the Battle of Magnesia, um, he dies while supposedly pillaging a temple um, in Persia while putting down another rebellion. So his defeat not only is consequential for Rome taking over everything, but it's also consequential for sort of the breakup of this expanded, reinstituted grand Seleucid empire that Antiochus had built painstakingly throughout his reign before that, for the previous 30 years, um, it all comes crashing down after he's defeated at Magnesia, when other kingdoms see that he's vulnerable, that the Romans have him, um, you know, in a hard place. And so they, they rebel and um, the Seleucids are never able to bring everything back into power again, which means they're never able to oppose Rome. Um, and in between, we get the the Seleucid Jewish wars of Maccabees and, um, and other, other stuff going on where they fight the Parthians who eventually defeat the Seleucids um, before the Romans then come back into the picture a uh, hundred or so years later. Well, if we ever do a, um, a sort of a down the pub on history's greatest loser or something like that, I'm I think certainly we have done, have... haven't we? Well, we might have to do a revamp just so that I can do Antiochus because this sounds fantastic. I mean, I've learned so much today. I mean, in spite of his rubbishness at times, I like him as a character. He just doesn't stop, does he? Yeah, he has the ambition. He's a prior. Yeah, he is. He's done 30 years and what more could he want? And he's like, nah, it's like a midlife crisis. But instead of going and buying a sports car, he he tries to destroy Rome. Yeah, well, I mean, he doesn't actually try and destroy Rome necessarily. He tries to gain Greece. Yeah. But in well, trying to gain Greece, it gets him against Rome. And he, yeah. But he, he, had he actually followed the Italian advice and come in 196, is what I talk about in the book, then mm. um, that four-year gap makes all the difference because he could have had allies that would have helped him. Um, by the time he comes, it doesn't work. But yeah, he's he's an interesting character, I think, partly because we don't know fully who he is or you know what makes him tick but just that he's able to create this and become the only great lucid king with that that nickname but and yet fails so spectacularly in his two huge battles um because of his own enthusiasm for riding a horse uh, <laughs> but then wins some others quite well you know and one battle he does win because he rides a horse well so it's uh um it depends on your viewpoint i guess but yeah his uh, 
as a as a tactician military historian i find um generalship one of my main interests and so antiochus is interesting as a statesman he's obviously pretty good in in creating an empire but then in fighting battles he's three for three by the end of his life um and unfortunately the three that he lost are generally more important than the three that he won so it's uh he's he's not as bad as others who just lose all the time so he is actually you know somewhat successful certainly politically um, and socially, but militarily he has his issues that he has to work through and never does, unfortunately. When I do World War I generals, obviously I'm a lot less uh, reverent about cavalry. Um, and and we, call, we call the people, the apologists for cavalry, donkey wallopers. Uh, and he, he does sound like one of the biggest donkey wallopers in history, but it's a, a bit more, I think it's allowed in his time period, isn't it? Yes, well, I mean, the, the heavy cavalry of his day were the tanks of, you know, World War Two. So he's, uh, um, he at least he should have been using cataphracts as tanks, but he lets them stand still and be attacked by weaker tanks um, and get uh, taken out. I, I um, think I think we've we've learned quite a lot. It's don't listen to Hannibal when he's egging you on to invade Greece. Don't launch scythe chariots against someone who knows how to deal with them. And if the elements are leaving their, their elephants behind, the Romans are leaving their elephants behind, maybe maybe there's a reason for that. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, Graham, it has been an absolute pleasure and a real eye-opener uh, chatting with you today. Um, tell people what's your book and where p- can people buy it? Uh, yeah, the book is called The Battles of Antiochus the Great, um, the failure of combined arms at Magnesia that lost the world to Rome. Uh, and it's available... Um, through Pen and Sword is the publisher. So you can get it from their website. Um, it's on Amazon. Um, it's, I'm sure it's in a number of bookshops. Well, I haven't been able to find it around here, but I'm sure it's uh, it's a British publisher. So it's probably more available in Britain in bookshops um, than here. Uh, and um, it, I'll do a brief plug too, that there will be a, a sequel coming out in a couple of years on the Third Macedonian War, where I use the same concepts and deal with Rome defeating Perseus uh, at Pydna um, and uh, examine how that happened too. Um, so yeah, go go buy it, read it. And uh, um, I love talking about this stuff. So uh, we'll the more the merrier. Any, any questions can come my way. <laughs> you will have to come back and tell us about the next one. Yes, I would love to. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.